You may be seated. Amen. Thank you, worship team, for leading us to the throne room. Well, to this morning, as you can see, we have a very interesting sermon title, Hugging the Cactus. Uh, we continue in our series of First Peter, and we will end our series next week, and we'll begin our series on scary love, uh, looking at 1 Corinthians 13 in an expositional way. Uh, but this morning, we are going to be talking about hugging the cactus from First. Peter. Uh, before we turn uh, to our eyes to, to the Lord in, in the, the Word, let us uh, turn our eyes to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we could be here today. We thank you for the Word that inspires us, challenges us. Holy Spirit of the living God, we thank you for carrying along those who were writing these words. And I pray, Holy Spirit of the living God, that you will illuminate the Word of God to us this morning. That as we look at Scripture, that your Spirit will convince and convict us of its truth. And we thank you that we have this opportunity to gather in freedom together, whether online or here in person, where we can open up your Word and be challenged from the very Word of God. I pray that this will be a time of transformation and not a time of simply education. Because God, the Word of God, your Word is powerful and transformative in our lives. We thank you in your name. Amen. You've probably seen over time many challenges. And, you know, there's these manly challenges that happen in our culture. Whether it's arm wrestling or wrestling or boxing or these challenges like the dumb ones, like the Tide Pod Challenge, which a lot of boys did and it was dumb. Uh, there's all kinds of other uh, challenges that you see people saying, hey, you know what, if you're really a man, you'll do X, Y, Z. One of those, uh, one of those challenges actually is hugging cactuses in the desert. If you're going to be a man, you've got to hug a cactus. You've got to go into the desert and prove your manliness by squeezing and fully embracing a cactus. Now, that's really dumb, right? Let me show you a picture real quick of a guy hugging a cactus. He's enjoying his moment with that cactus. I don't know why, I don't know how, but it was a challenge that he embraced with all of his heart. You know, and, and you're thinking, how in the world would this prove manliness? Well, it doesn't. It just proves stupidity in my mind. Uh, because this, this challenge is, is it's hurtful, it's harmful to your body. It doesn't feel very good. Who would want to hug a cactus? Well, we are called to hug a cactus. And we're going to look at how we are to hug a cactus as we open up to 1 Peter. Believers are to rejoice as they embrace the cactus of suffering. We are to rejoice as we embrace the cactus of suffering. That guy who looked really silly enjoying that hug to that cactus is sort of how we're to respond to suffering in our lives. Now, we don't like suffering. It's not something that we get up in the morning and get excited about. Today, I'm going to suffer. No, that's not something that we're really excited about. We don't jump out of bed ready to suffer. But we are called to hug the cactus of suffering. We are called to do that. Jesus calls us to that. The natural man rejects suffering. He does not rejoice in it. 
But in suffering, God promises you and I growth. In suffering, he promises you and I growth. In James 1, 2 through 4, James says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness for its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So if we're called to embrace the cactus of suffering in our lives, if we're called to hug the cactus, how can we suffer well? How can we embrace suffering well? And that's the question that we're going to answer this morning as we open up the scriptures in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. So if you have your scriptures, please open that to me, open the app uh, with me, or you can see it on the screen. Here we go. <clears throat> Excuse me. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and God and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We've seen early on in this this passage of 1 Peter in our series that Peter mentions suffering in chapter 1. And here he expounds upon it even deeper. This book in particular is about hope, but it's also about suffering and hope in the midst of suffering. And so I believe that as we look at this scripture and and look at the question, how can we embrace suffering well? I believe that in this particular passage, Peter gives us four keys to unlock the ability to embrace suffering well. And the very first key is that of expectation. Embracing suffering begins with an expectation and anticipation of suffering. He says in the very beginning in in verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He's saying, church, expect suffering. To the early church, they were already experiencing some suffering. And he was encouraging them, saying, expect even more. Anticipate suffering that will come. Now, one of the hardest things for believers to capture, for believers to live into, especially in our pampered Western society, one of the hardest realities of the gospel for us is the cross that you and I are to bear. Where Jesus calls us to carry our own cross. Where he's saying, you are to die to yourself. The the Christian reality is not just about life, but it's also about death. Death to self. 
if we are to have a rich theology, if we are to be honest with the totality of Scripture, we have got to have a theology of suffering. We have got to expect and anticipate suffering. But many times when we experience suffering, we raise our fist at God and we're mad or angry and bitter, which is an okay response because we see that in Psalms. But in the end, he says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Consistently, he begins with his grievance, but he ends with blessing the Lord, saying, I know that there's something in this. Other times, we walk away from our faith saying, how could God let suffering happen in my life? If he's really sovereign, why would this happen? Other times, we just get depressed and down, and we don't talk to anyone, or we just lose hope. But Peter is saying, don't lose hope. In suffering, expect it. Anticipate it. Francois Fenelon, an old, an old guy from the 1500s, he said this, I'm amazed at the power that comes to us through suffering. We are worth nothing without the cross. That is a powerful and very difficult statement. But I believe he's sharing with us a reality of the gospel, a theology of suffering where he says, listen, we need the cross to die to ourselves. We need this fiery trial as Peter talks about it in order for us to die to self. We're worth nothing without the cross because that means that we're not dead to ourselves. That means we're still living in our own flesh. And he's saying we must sacrifice our flesh. And Peter is saying the same thing. And the word fiery in Greek is pyrios, which means burning or refining. So he says fiery trial. This burning or refining trial is something that we should expect and anticipate. It's something that will come. Now, in, in this specific passage, we can see that Peter is talking to the church about suffering for their faith. As they step out into a world that despised Jesus, they will also be despised. As they step into a culture that is sinful and enjoys living for their, their fleshly desires, he's saying, listen, you're going to experience suffering. Just be ready for it. But I also believe that this it can encompass any suffering that you and I experience. Because let's be honest, in America, we are not a persecuted people as Christians. We're just simply not. And for us to say, oh, we're in so much persecution now for X, Y, Z, man, we are, we are not really understanding the fullness of the persecution of the early church. We might be marginalized at this point, we might be experiencing a little bit of marginalization. It's not even segregation yet, where we're being segregated and called out and pointed out and, and purposely pushed down in America. We're not experiencing even segregation. So we're not, how can we say we're experiencing persecution? Again, we might be experiencing marginalization, but let us not call it persecution. Because that is the early church's experience and the church in China and the church in Russia. They are experiencing real persecution. And we must pray for them. But we also, as we come to the end of the age, we must expect our own suffering because it's coming. We need to be ready for it. We cannot be surprised by it. Again, he is talking about 
this persecution for faith, but I had said we can look at any suffering that we experience as a time where we can grow. Because suffering can set us up for growth, as James said. He said very specifically, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. All kinds of trials, all kinds of suffering. Count it joy. I fully believe that there can be no growth without pruning. There can be no growth without pruning. What does that mean? Well, if you are to look at, at, at a vine or you're to look at grapes and you want to have the vine dresser take care of those grapes and make the best, plumpest, sweetest grapes, for the, for the vine to grow, there needs to be pruning. That which is dead needs to be cut off. That which is dying needs to be snipped off of the vine so that it does not take the life that is supposed to be going into the grapes themselves. And so in our own lives, we need to allow God to prune us. It's not comfortable. It's not fun. If I were that vine and I had experienced the feeling of things being cut off of my body, that would not be fun. (laughs) But it's necessary for the best growth possible for the vine. The same is true for you and me. That you and I need the pruning of God in our lives so that we can consistently die to ourselves more and more and more. Fenelon again says, even now my soul is suffering, but I am aware that it is the life of self which causes us pain. Here's a really hard saying. He finishes it off by saying, that which is dead does not suffer. So if we are dead to that specific area in our life and God is pruning it, we embrace it and we don't suffer because we're saying, yes, I need that to be cut off. That is something that needs to be crucified. That is something that needs to be put to death. Thank you, God, for cutting that out of my life. Now, it's not fun. We must die to self. This is one of the most difficult realities to live into. I think many times we, myself included, give a lot of lip service to carrying our own cross, to self-denial, to killing the self-life that's within us. We can give a lot of lip service, but when it comes to the suffering in our lives, any kind of trial, we're not counting it joy. Now, hear me. Many times when we talk about this, we can have a couple of thoughts where we get a religious formula where we say, oh, I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps. Yeah, pastor, I'm encouraged because you're talking about joy and suffering. But it's not about you. It's about surrender to the Holy Spirit saying, I need you to help me embrace this change. In order for me to die to myself and lose myself, I need more of you. In order for that suffering to to be a growth moment of my faith, bringing me steadfastness, I need more of you and less of myself. But also when it comes to suffering, this is not me saying, hey, you can't grieve it. Because you can have grief and joy because joy is not necessarily this happy, clappy feeling. You and I, when we have pain and loss and suffering in our lives, we need to have proper weight of grief. David displays this as he grieves over and over again in the scriptures. The sons of Korah in their psalms do the same. In fact, I think it's something like two-thirds of the psalms are laments as they're grieving. There's a whole book called Lamentations in the Bible. He's not saying don't grieve. He's saying allow that moment 
to kill parts of yourself so that you can grow. Count it joy. Saying, God, I'm grieving this loss, but I know that I can have growth. I want to embrace the growth that I have coming to me. So we see the first key is that of expectation, expecting suffering to happen. And the second key is the key of rejoicing. Because suffering can be a cause for rejoicing. I say can be a cause because we have to let go and allow it to become a cause for rejoicing. Because we can hold on to it and say, God, I'm not going to rejoice. No, this is not joy. I'm going to grow bitter and I'm going to grow angry. And I won't grieve this suffering in my life. I'm going to hold tight to it. I'm going to hold you to account. But we can have cause for rejoicing. We can have cause for rejoicing. Again, the frame of what he's talking about is the persecuted church specifically for their faith. But as I said, we cannot discount this for our own lives now. First and foremost, because there is suffering coming. As the church, we have got to be ready. We have got to have our, our lamps lit, experiencing the suffering that is going to come. Now, we don't have any clue as to when it's going to come. Many people believe it's coming sooner rather than later. We can't anticipate it. We don't know the times when Jesus will return. But we can be prepared and know that suffering will transpire in our lives. So that when those fiery trials come for our faith, we are not surprised. But we also experience all kinds of trials, all kinds of various trials in our lives. And here we see this issue of rejoicing. Peter gives us two reasons why we can rejoice, not just embrace the cactus of our suffering, but we can sing songs of rejoicing as we're hugging this prickly cactus in our lives. And we can look like that guy who is just hugging it with love and joy. He says this, rejoice insofar as we share Christ's suffering. The Greek word for rejoice here is kairo, and it means to be glad, a state of happiness and rejoicing. He's saying, be glad when you're hugging the cactus. Yes, you can grieve, but also be glad. Be glad that he has counted you worthy of suffering as Christ suffered. In Hebrews, we see that Christ has suffered in every way that you and I have suffered. He is a God who stepped down into humanity to experience the same suffering that you and I experience. We cannot look at God and say, you have no idea. Because he sure does. We can't look at God and say, you don't have a clue. Because he sure does. He stepped down so that he could experience the suffering that you and I experience. And we can count it joy because we have been counted worthy to suffer as he suffered. Warren Wearsby, who really makes a lot of sense of stuff, he says this, not every believer grows to the point where God can trust him with this kind of experience. So we ought to rejoice when the privilege comes to us. Whatever glorifies God will anger the enemy and he will attack. For believers, persecution is not a strange thing. Now here's another hard thing. The absence of satanic opposition, that's what would be strange. Woo. 
that's not a fun thing to hear. If we are lacking satanic opposition, we are not fighting on the front lines. We are not scaring the enemy. We are not offending him. In fact, he's like, yeah, just sit back, relax, go to church, read your Bible, that's okay. <laughs> just sit back and do it all on your own. Yeah, just live into your flesh and pretend like everything's okay with God. Don't confess, don't, don't return and repent, just do all the duty things, perform well, and, and you're good. My friends, that's a lie. Because if we are not scaring the enemy... He will not attack because he does not care to do so. But when he attacks, we can rejoice and say, you know what? <laughs> I'm making him angry. I'm stepping on the enemy's toes. I'm taking away some of his ground, and he's coming after me. That's one reason. We can rejoice because whatever glorifies God will anger the enemy. Rejoice! Whatever glorifies God will anger the enemy. You and I are to live our lives glorifying Jesus. We are to offend Satan with everything we say and everything that we do. We cannot sit back and just chill. We cannot sit back and not fight the enemy. We are to be on the front lines, to have our armor on, experiencing and expecting the enemy to come after us. And as suffering will come to the church, as we anticipate and expect that to come, we better be ready to fight. I fear that many in the Western church are not ready to fight. I fear that many of us have just pay been paying lip service to our faith. We are easily offended. We are easily angered. But we need to walk in truth. We need to rejoice when we suffer. Warren Wearsby again gives us the second reason that, that we can suffer out of the scripture. We can suffer because of the future glory. The world believes that the absence of suffering means glory. But a Christian's outlook is different. The trial of our faith today is the assurance of glory when Jesus returns. And we can remember that he said this in 1 Peter 1, 7 through 8, that the hope the church can cling to is the second coming of Christ. Listen, we, we have stopped talking about eschatology in the American church. We might give lip service again to it as we come to the table and say, yeah, may we continue to do this until he comes again. But we forget to hold on to the hope that the second coming brings to the believer. We can suffer in the body. We can suffer here and now, knowing that when Christ returns, all things will be restored. All things will be made new. Think about that. Dwell on that. As you walk through the suffering, you can have hope because Jesus is coming again. And he will conquer Satan's sin and death. All the suffering that we experience now will bring glory and pointing to his coming. And say, you know what? Yes, this is tough. Yes, I need to grieve this. But his coming brings hope to my heart. When we truly dwell upon the second coming of Christ, as we see it laid bare in scripture, we can have hope. Hope that defies all logic. 
Cedar says this, suffering for the Christian must always be seen in the perspective of eternity. McQuilkin once wrote, it is suffering and then glory. Not to have the suffering means not to have the glory. When we suffer, are we having eternity in our minds? Or are we thinking about the temporal world that we live in? Because the world that we live in now is not the glory of paradise. The world that we live in now, Satan has some control as he leads people away. And God has allowed him that control to give you and I a choice. Are we going to choose him and choose his way? Or are we going to choose our own? We are to push forward in the truth of the gospel. We are to bring hope to a hopeless world by sharing with them the beauty of the gospel, the salvation of Jesus. But we also must have a theology of suffering. Rarely do I hear at an evangelistic event anything about suffering. It's always about the goodness and, oh, you can be saved, you can be saved, you can be saved. This should also be a moment of saying, hey, if you come to Christ, if you do accept Christ today, expect some suffering in your life. Expect Christ to kill some things because coming to Christ is not just saying, hey, save me. It's saying, hey, I need to die to myself. I need to confess and repent of my sins and I need you to slay the flesh within me. That's what we say when we come to Christ. We need to have a theology of suffering. Expect it, anticipate it, but also rejoice within it. It's difficult to do. And again, we can think of this as a religious formula where we try to do it in our own power. But it's about surrender. It's about surrender. Surrendering our flesh. Surrendering our, our, our inner man to Him to give us a new heart, to give us regeneration. And the third key, we saw the first key is expectation. The second key is rejoicing. The third key is presence. And this is personally my favorite key in this particular passage because God is powerfully present in the experience of suffering for Christ. Look at verse 14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In our suffering, God is present. He is not far off. He is not far away. He is there. And we could look at our past pain in our lives that has controlled our lives. And we could say, God, where were you in that? And as we pray and say, show me where Jesus was in the midst of that painful moment, he will. He will show you that he was there with you. And when you're in your current suffering, he is there with you. I remember growing up as a kid in my house, we had the, the, this big poster called Footsteps. And maybe many of you remember it. <laughs> Where this, this, this person is walking on the sand, they see only one pair of footsteps in the worst parts of their lives. In the good times, they see there's two sets of, of footprints where they're walking with Jesus. And then when suffering and pain happens in their lives, they're like, why would you leave me 
in the midst of the hardest times of my life, and Jesus whispers to him or her, that's when I was carrying you. In the midst of your suffering, I was holding you. I was embracing you. Maybe we just don't see it. We don't understand it. But again, we see that Christ joins us in our suffering. We are not alone. Many times in suffering, we have that phrase in our heads, I'm all alone. No one understands. No one gets it. No one is with me. I am doing this by myself. And that's exactly where Satan wants you to be. Because he doesn't want you to see Jesus in the midst of it. He is walking alongside of you, sometimes carrying you in the time of suffering. He is present. This reflects back to John 16, where he says, Despite suffering, I have overcome the world. In Matthew 28, 20, he says, He will be with us always. He will be with us always. That means he is with us in the good and the bad. He walks with us. He is ever-present. He does not leave us alone. That is a beautiful, beautiful truth. And when we walk in suffering, may we not believe the lie of the enemy that we are alone. But may we say, Lord, I know you are with me. Let me feel your presence. Let me be overwhelmed with your presence. And he will meet you there. You will feel his love. You will feel him wrapping his arms around you and holding you. Even as you cry, you know, sometimes you have snotty cries where you're crying so bad you just have snot dripping from your face and you're embarrassed for anyone to see you, but he sees you and he's holding you. And he's saying, I've got you. It's not all over me. It's okay. You know, when you have a baby, they just throw up on your shoulder all the time, right? You know what I'm talking about, the uh, parents. I saw a picture of me not not too long ago, and I had this big, huge white spot on my shoulder. I'm like, why would I have a picture of me with a white spot on my shoulder? I must have just put MJ down. (laughs) But we can do that to God. He's okay with our spit up and our tears and our snot on his shoulder because he's holding us. He's with us. We are not alone. He is present in the midst of our suffering. Despite whatever type of suffering we experience, we need to recognize he is with us. Job's, one of my favorite First Peter commentators says this, for it is only by the power of the Spirit that one finds the resolve and strength to live an uncompromising life in a society that is hostile to one's fundamental convictions and values. It is the power of the Spirit of God living within you that pushes you forward in the midst of those suffering moments. Dying to self is surrendering to the Holy Spirit's agenda. It's letting go of our, of our fleshly self and embracing the Spirit in our lives. Like I said, in our lives, John the Baptist said it well, less of me and more of you. That is a prayer that you and I need to pray, and sometimes that prayer is going to bring pruning. It's going to bring pain. Because Christ needs to chip away and cut off those things that need to die. We can also see that suffering can bring deeper sanctification. Not only can it bring us a a rejoicing, but it can bring us deeper sanctification if we surrender to the process. And we say, yes, I want to be made holy. 
We pray that prayer of God, make me holier. I want to be sanctified through and through as the scripture promises me. Much of that sanctification is going to come in the midst of pain and suffering. We've talked about this before, but the early church, they didn't start growing exponentially until they were persecuted. Think about that. The church grows more under persecution than any other time in history. This is true in the church in Vietnam. This is true for the church in China. This is true for the church in Russia. It is a truth. Why is that? Why is it happening? Because suffering can bring deeper sanctification. And when these believers are being put through the fire, the fiery trials, being refined and cutting off those things that need to die, they're going out into the world holier. And they see the need of the gospel, the hope of the resurrection in a hopeless world. How can we have hope in a pandemic? Well, we anticipate and expect suffering. We rejoice in suffering. We remember the presence of God and the hope of the resurrection in the midst of suffering. Job's again says, one's willingness to suffer rather than compromise, indicates the inner transformation of the sanctifying work of the Spirit that has set one apart as a living stone in the spiritual house of God. We ask the Lord to grow us and to take us deeper, and sometimes He may take us through the fire to answer that prayer. In order for gold to be purified, to be made more perfect, to be made more valuable, It must be refined by fire. You and I are called gold in Scripture. He uses that imagery of refinement. We must recognize that this is something to expect. Finally, the fourth key to embracing the cactus of suffering is that of glory. Because suffering for Christ brings greater glory to the name of Christ. Suffering for Christ brings greater glory to the name of Christ. As we suffer and rejoice in our suffering, as we suffer and become more holy, the name of Jesus is made great in our suffering. We are glorifying Jesus with our suffering. Now that seems strange, But we can embrace the cactus with that beautiful smile on our face as that guy was embracing the cactus because we know that Jesus is becoming glorified. Listen, the Holy Spirit's main role in the life of the believer is to glorify Jesus Christ. And so if you and I are filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the fruits of that, although it's not listed in Galatians, one of the fruits of the filling of the Holy Spirit is rejoicing in suffering is glorifying Christ in the midst of suffering because as believers, we will glorify Christ. As believers, our desire is to glorify Christ in all we say and do. I didn't say it should be. I said as believers, our desire will be, is to glorify It is a natural response of being filled with the Holy Spirit to glorify Christ with all we say and all that we do. And Peter reminds the church that you don't need to be ashamed of the gospel. There's no shame in standing up and saying, I'm suffering for the glory of Christ. 
Yes, it's painful. Yes, I'm grieving it. Yes, it's a loss. Yes, it's hard. But I'm going to glorify God in the midst of it. The culture around the early church, and I think we live in a similar culture, would shame them and say, well, why don't you just get, get free of this name of Jesus thing? You don't need to die. All you have to do is just walk away from it. Go back to Caesar. Don't, don't worship Jesus. And they mock and they malign the early church. And they beat and killed them to try and extinguish the church. But it only grew because Christ was being glorified. Christ was being glorified. Peter then reminds the church in verse 17 something that is an interesting passage that sometimes is hard to swallow. He says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what righteous, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Judgment begins with the house of God. What does that mean? Well, that means that as when we come before God at the throne room, you and I are responsible for how we lived our lives on earth. We will have to give an account, even though we are saved, we will have to give an account for our lives. That is why Peter earlier on in chapter 4, as you remember, said for the rest of your time, he's saying, listen, for the rest of your life, Live for the glory of Jesus. Choose today to put a stake in the ground and say, I will live for the glory of Christ for the rest of my days. And as a believer, we must put a stake in the ground and say, I will live for Christ the rest of my days. But many times we, we become lackadaisical. We become lackadaisical and we waste our lives by giving hours and hours to newspapers, to Facebook, to Netflix, and we miss the eternality of what we have right now. Now, I'm not saying it's, it's bad to relax and watch a good show. It's not bad to relax and, and look at Facebook once in a while. It's not bad to read the news. But when we come, become consumed by it, man, it agitates us. We get angry. We get bitter. We get frustrated because nothing is good in the news these days. Nothing is good on Facebook. Rarely do I see when I scroll Facebook shortly that anything is happy or anything is nice except maybe a picture of a baby here and there. Most of it's arguing and, and bitterness and anger. And then I start saying, oh, I'm so mad. Well, I just need to step back and say, listen, I need to live for the glory of Christ. I can't get bogged down with all of these things. They suck up our life but we're responsible for how we live now. When we get to glory and Jesus says, hey, you spent 75 hours a week on these things, but you spent maybe 30 minutes with me, 30 minutes in the world sharing the gospel, if any. We're responsible for how we live now. May we put a stake in the ground. This has been a time in my life where God is begin, beginning to prune me, where he's called me to cut things off, to, to give up stuff and give in. I'm not perfect. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I have it all together. doesn't mean that I'm always walking the path that I should be. But God has been convicting me and convincing me of giving up more and more. 
I don't have any entertainment on my phone anymore. I don't have Facebook or any social media on my phone anymore because I was spending so much time. And I love the report. Every, day, every, every week on my iPhone, I get a report and it says, you know what, you've been 75% less on your phone than you were the week before. And I rejoice in that, saying, it's working. <laughs> yes! My friends, we need to give up and give in. Give up and give in to what Christ is calling us to. Dying to self is dying to our desires so we can glorify Christ. Number 10, hug the cactus of self-denial for the glory of Christ. Self-denial is antithetical to American culture. It is. It just simply is. Self-denial is not something that we talk about often in the secular world or sadly even in the Christian world. But the cross is a key part of our faith. Not just Jesus' cross, but our own cross. Are we dying to ourselves? In order to unlock the door to embracing suffering well, we must use the keys of expectation, rejoicing, presence, and glory. May we expect the suffering to come, but may we rejoice at the fiery trials that come our way, that we are called worthy to, work, to suffer the same way as Christ. May we grieve well, but may we also be glad, knowing that the enemy is attacking us because we're scaring him. As believers of God, I've said this before, and it's a little bit juvenile, I understand, but it still makes the point. You and I as believers should make Satan wet his pants with fear. That's how we are to live. He killed Christ because he was afraid of what Jesus would do. Little did he know that he was actually making a way for you and I to have salvation and sanctification. May we live in such a way that creates fear for the enemy. But when we do, may we expect suffering in our lives for the name of Christ or any other trial that may, we may see. But may we live for the glory of Christ in all we say and do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can hug the cactus of suffering well. It's not fun it's hard. We must grieve it. But may we find joy and gladness and rejoicing. And may we experience your presence in suffering more than we have ever before as we look for you, realizing we're not alone. And may that transform how we live so that we can glorify the name of Jesus. In your holy and precious name, amen.